the Cambrian explosion, the miracles of Jesus, and the limits of human knowledge. It's an extra nerdy edition of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. So excited to tell you guys about an event called Belong that I'm doing with Michael Gunger and some other folks from the Liturgists in Atlanta, Georgia, June 15th and 16th. There's just 100 seats and there are a few left. So if you'd like to join us and people from all over the country are, just check it out on the web. Otherwise, let's get it started. Hey, Mike, what are your thoughts on the intelligent design theories that are based on the Cambrian explosion era in which uh, animals appeared in the fossil record without any prior ancestors, apparently? Is it good science? Is it malarkey? What's your thoughts? Thanks. Well, the Cambrian era is a time in history, planetary history, geologic history, from like 540 million years ago to, you know, 490, 495 million years ago, something like that. It's a big, big period of time early in the history of life on this planet. And in the early Cambrian era, there was suddenly a lot of species that appear in the fossil record. But let's talk about what that means, this Cambrian explosion, this appearance of a lot of life early in the fossil record, early in the Cambrian era. An explosion is kind of bad branding. (laughs) If it was an explosion, it was a very slow-moving one. We're talking about tens of millions of years, 30 million years or so, in which uh, there was this explosion of life. Now, it was an impressive addition to the amount of life on Earth. Our earliest fossils are bacteria and single-cell organisms, and they dominated life on Earth for a long, long time. Then algae appears. You know, things are relatively static up toward um, the Cambrian. You did have some uh, primitive multicellular life and even um, almost worm or or insect or arthropod-like organisms, you know, in the pre-Cambrian period. But suddenly you get this diversification, the Cambrian. Uh, But here's the thing about that. The fossil record is not a perfect record of life on Earth. Uh, you, You need certain conditions for fossilization to occur that aren't universal. And fossilization heavily favors organisms that have a skeleton or a shell. If you're soft and squishy, it's very difficult for you to become a fossil. You, you know, your best case is probably an imprint, but even that's a stretch uh, compared to animals with a hard shell for obvious reasons. You know, go get some Play-Doh, you know, try to take a, a mold in your Play-Doh of some jelly. It's not going to happen. <laughs> the jelly is too viscous to leave an impression in the Play-Doh, right? But if you take a, a spoon or an egg, it's going to be really easy to make an impression in the Play-Doh. And when the Play-Doh hardens, you're going to have basically a fo- an impression fossil of your spoon or your egg, okay? 
that's pretty straightforward. So when we look kind of at this explosion, again, it's like it's really slow moving. And we don't always have perfect records of transitional organisms in the fossil record. That's okay, because evolution and natural selection is a very comprehensive theory, but no scientist believes that it's perfect. We expect that new information will come forward to help us refine how we understand evolution works, when species emerged. We know there's gaps in the theory. And this is the problem with intelligent design science. Intelligent design begins with a conclusion and works backwards. They start with the assumption that God made everything and that God directed everything, and then they find data to support that conclusion. That's not how science works. Science works by putting forth a testable hypothesis and then either finding the data or not, right? And a lot of times, New data will not only destroy a hypothesis, uh, but lead science in completely new directions, as fossils did in the first place. So, you know, intelligent design is not, in my opinion, good science. And man, the email box is going to light up on that one. But (laughs) it should not be any surprise that Science Mike is not a fan of intelligent design. I tend to think much, much better of the science of something like theistic evolution, where believers are open to looking at the way science informs our understanding of the process of creation. But even there, the assumption that God drives creation, this presuppositionalist proposition, is, is, is unscientific, right? Science begins with a null hypothesis. We don't believe anything in science until we get the evidence for it. So it's not surprising at all that in a 30 million year period of time, you had a rapid diversification of life on Earth. That's happened multiple times in the fossil record, typically following mass extinction events when suddenly niches in the ecosystem go unfilled because of wide uh, scale extinction. There could have been something similar in the Precambrian that led to the Cambrian explosion, or it could have just been natural selection as it does uh, begin to repurpose certain attributes of organisms. They were very successful in competing for energy, for food, and were able to reproduce more. And suddenly, you you know, natural selection is the arms race accelerates. None of this is surprising. None of this undermines evolution. Uh, and the fact that evolution has gaps doesn't automatically prove creationism. That's not how science works. You don't just pit two ideas against each other. You test a hypothesis at a time, and then you assemble a body of work to create operational theories, capital T theories, about how the universe works. Hi, Mike. My name is Emily, and I'm in Indianapolis. I've been listening to your show pretty much since it started, and I just want to say thanks for all you're doing. Um, So my question is about the limits of human knowledge and how it pertains to our theology. So I heard uh, sometime last year about this idea that um, some researchers think that we are reaching the limits of human knowledge. That is, there is only so much that the human brain can comprehend and we're reaching the end of it. So it's like the brain is a glass and it's almost full of water. And once it's all the way full, it can't be filled up anymore. 
So if we're assuming that there are limits to human knowledge, what does that mean for the way that we view God? You mentioned a few podcasts ago about how you you know think our theology is always evolving and the way we view God is always changing. So if there are limits to human knowledge, that means there are also definitely limits to what we can know about God, which makes sense. But then what happens to our ever-evolving theology when we can't know anymore? So basically, I'm just wondering if you think there's any water to this idea that there are limits on human knowledge. And if that's the case, then what does that mean for our theology? Thanks, Mike. You know, it's funny because this is such a diverse audience for this show. I, I uh, You know, there's some really hardcore nerds like me that listen to the show that are really, really into science, really into philosophy, really into epistemology. And then there's this other crowd of like probably a larger crowd of more reasonable people who are just interested in safe conversations uh, that incorporate science into how we understand faith. And those people are always telling me that they love the show uh, and that they still listen even when the question and the answer is confusing or gives them a headache. And this is definitely a potential headache kind of question. Um, so I hope that you know most of you guys will stay with me through a question that is really deeply philosophical in addition to touching on uh, neurology and Anyway, we'll we'll see how much of a headbender this one ends up being. Um, so when I listened to your question, I couldn't find the research you were referring to. Uh, if you want to send me that in a follow-up, I'd really appreciate it. I'd love to check it out. But in your question, I kind of heard two different things. There's like there's limits on what humans can learn as a species by observation versus limits on what a brain can process or how much information a single brain can can store. You know, so we've been in this interesting information treadmill in modern society as we are producing more and more and more and more information than ever. So the percentage of total human knowledge that any one human can possibly hold is rapidly decreasing, and that's causing intense specialization. There's a great talk I watched once that was premised on the idea that there's no one person who can make a computer mouse, that it requires a massive cooperation of people who have never met and never even know each other to make a computer mouse because some people know how to write software, some people design chips, some people know how to make plastic, mold plastic, do assembly, ship it. All these things have to come together to make a computer mouse. And I think that's important because what that analogy shows or that story shows is that all the information in uh, discrete human brains and different human brains can, through civilization and cooperation, create something that transcends the limitation of any one brain. But let's talk about the limits of knowledge for just a second. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld, of all people, really summed this up well, but he got horribly made fun of for it. But here's a quote from, from old Rummy. He said, there are known knowns. These are the things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we don't know we don't know. Now, Mr. Rumsfeld was talking about national security, but that certainly applies to science, physics, philosophy, any realm of human knowledge. There are things we know that we know, and there are things that we know that we don't know, but then there is a vast well of knowledge that we don't know 
that we don't know. And all you have to do is look back at history to see that. There are things we know today that a thousand years ago we didn't even know we didn't know. We didn't have the fundamental ideas that if someone would have told us about germ theory, for example, uh, it wouldn't have made sense without any understanding of microorganisms. If you told someone about uh, you know, natural selection or genetics independent of each other too far back in history, it wouldn't make sense. The requisite assumptions weren't there. So, are there limits on what humans can know? Well, absolutely. Let's talk about some known unknowns in physics. There's something called the cosmic microwave background radiation. This is radiation left over from the moment that the universe first became translucent to light. It's, it's a signal that we can trace back to a mere 380,000 years or so after the universe first emerged from singularity. That's a hard limit. We have these theories, these mathematical models that make predictions prior to that moment, but we can make no observation. That's why gravity waves are such a big deal, why it was a big deal when we thought we found them, and it was a big deal when we realized we didn't have the statistical confidence to make that claim, because gravity waves would let us to make, make observations before that moment and further refine or validate our understanding of the early origins of the universe, things like cosmic inflation. It's essential work. Today, there is this veil around the universe. You know, it's also the edge of the observable universe, the light that has had time to travel to us since the beginning of our observable universe. That's a hard limit. We can't see beyond it. We don't have a theoretical framework for looking beyond it. If we look on the small scale, we have no idea how we would engineer and construct particle accelerators that were powerful enough to probe reality on the scale that theoretical physics is playing and building models in today. If you look at string theory or quantum foam, we're nowhere near the energy levels to reproduce the conditions that would allow us to make observations about these fundamental ideas about how the universe may be ultimately composed. I I heard it quipped once that you would need a particle accelerator uh, the size of the orbit of Pluto in order to probe some of those scales based on understanding of physics today. I don't know if that's true or not. That physicist could have been joking. I'm not smart enough to tell the difference, frankly. But there's hard limits in physics. Now, if we talk about brains, human brains are pretty remarkable. We can store a lot of information. Now, we're not good at storing information the way that computers are. We don't store precise bits of information. We don't really store digital information. Human memory is far more complex and subtle. We have memories that are built around story and narrative and images that are reassembled by our brains as we recall them. Um, That's why our memories are both uh, very captivating and not terribly reliable. Uh, We also know that through sleep, our brain decides, among other things, uh, what memories are important and which ones are going to get thrown in the trash, so to speak. And in fact, researchers have shown that one of the aspects that differentiates more intelligent brains from less intelligent brains is not the ability to remember, but the ability to forget. This is where our absent-minded professor stereotype comes from. The brain that can complicate physics is able to do so 
because that brain is all too ready to forget where the car keys are. So that's there are limits on how much information we can store, but our brains are well-suited. We know that in a 100-year lifetime, a brain will be able to remember very early and significant memories and continue to have operational memory for each day. It does this by disregarding information that's not essential or not important. There's another idea in the limits of human knowledge, and that's the complexity of data. We're quickly getting to the point where some of our science cannot be explained via metaphor or intuitive language. Quantum physics is there already. You really need math to accurately depict cosmology or quantum physics. And in other fields of study, the data sets are much too large for us to get our heads around economics, politics. We make simplified models to operate within these systems, but we are nowhere near Uh, understanding or modeling the immense complexity that actually drives those systems. Uh, Chaos theory kind of is is one idea behind that. Um, Now, we do can use metaphor and model to understand and, and, and kind of get a limited grasp on large data sets like this. And of course, computer science is enormously helpful. But we are finding that perhaps there are some limits on the level of complexity our brains can handle without force amplifier like computing. So, is the edge of the observable universe or the standard model or any of these things, are these hard limits on human knowledge? Those are unknown unknowns. We have no way to know what the limits are on what we can know. And if one day we think we've discovered everything, we'd have no way to validate that. The good news is we're absolutely Nowhere near the limits of human knowledge. There is much left to discover and much, much left to learn. Uh, And so this is an interesting sort of philosophical question. Uh, What's interesting to me is how rapidly humanity is gaining knowledge and gaining insights about the natural world. And frankly, doing so in a way that can produce a better quality of human life. Hey, Science Mike. I have a question about the miracles of Jesus. Did he ever heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the 5,000, or turn water into wine? Or, for instance, was the writer of John simply trying to make Jesus more interesting to the worshipers of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine? What do you as a scientifically-minded person think of these miracles? Are they mutually exclusive? If some or all of Jesus' miracles did not actually happen... Why do you think they're included within the four Gospels? What do they mean to you? I'm looking forward to hearing what you say about this. Thanks a lot, Science Mike. This is such a frustrating question for me to answer. <laughs> because I'm pretty good at synthesis. It's, it's, a, it's a talent of mine. I'm good at kind of taking lots of things I've learned and, and without much effort, turning that into a cohesive narrative or, or, or a simple story or answer. But this one, there's so much... Even trying to write out notes ahead of time, I would have insights of something I wanted to write down and then try to write it down. As I write it down, I have another insight. And this is this is a question that I probably could spend a lot of time uh, writing. This is probably a book in there. <laughs> I'm not the guy to write that book, but there's definitely a book in this question. I am Science Mike and not Theology Mike. Okay, so I want to make that really clear. We do ask questions about science, faith, and life on the program, 
But a lot of times it's how science informs our faith, not just faith. I get a lot of just faith questions and I answer them because it's important to me that these questions get out in the open. And this is certainly a question that in most churches, uh, an eyebrow or two would get raised at the least if you asked if Jesus actually performed miracles. So it is my pleasure to answer this question honestly, but it's just so intimidating. Uh, I certainly probably study biblical history more than the average person, maybe even the average Christian. Uh, But I know actual experts. I've spent time with people who have deeply studied these topics, and it has made it so clear to me that I'm barely scratching the surface. I know people with PhDs and multiple PhDs that can read the original languages and have studied the anthropology at a doctorate level, and I am just not that qualified. And I hate to do disclaimers like that, but I have to on this question. So with that, here's kind of where I'm at today. The Gospels are meant to be persuasive to specific audiences. The authors of each Gospel had an audience in mind as that author wrote. Those authors were almost certainly not Matthew Mark, Luke, and John in the world of academia. The Gospels were recorded later. The Gospels are actually uh, generally believed to uh, have been recorded later than Paul's earliest letters. And when you read those Gospels, uh, they are heavily influenced by each other. And what they talk about in terms of Jesus' divinity helps you understand what audience they were trying to talk to. So the Gospels that were written for Jewish audiences tend to emphasize lineage and draw parallels to uh, Old Testament prophecy for those audiences. Whereas when you see more elements uh, that indicate divinity for Greco-Roman audiences or even little quips against Caesar, uh, for example, um, there's no name under heaven and earth by which men may be saved by the name of Jesus. My understanding is the original saying there was Caesar. So that was a quip against Caesar. And that helps you understand that these documents were made for an audience to talk about why Jesus was amazing. Modern history is different than ancient history and how it was understood. Uh, People had a more narrative understanding. There was no such thing as a dry historical read uh, of history. Um, and, And these people are taking... Oral tradition, things that were were spread from person to person to person, and then writing them down, and in the process, injecting their own ideas into the text. Um, That's how I read and understand the Gospels. There are certainly facts in the Gospels. I think Jesus, it's not controversial to say Jesus was a real person, and really a Jew, and really living about in that time in history. But there's also very likely some mythological components. Now, of course, a secular academic would say that the resurrection is a mythological component as well as, you know, healing the sick and the feeding of the 5,000 water into wine, that that is all mythology. I have been in the camp where I believe that the Gospels are completely literal, and I have been in the camp where, frankly, I didn't think Jesus was a real person at all, and it was all mythology. It was an assemblage of different uh, early apocalyptic cult rabbis. Okay, today, I'm more in the middle. And here's the deal. I don't know which miracles happened and which did not. I don't have any idea. Scientifically, I can't say water turned into wine 
or that 5,000 were fed from just a few loaves. There's not enough empirical evidence to support those claims. And apologists who point to things like eyewitness testimony, scientists don't accept eyewitness testimony uh, to validate such extraordinary claims. And that's not unique to Christianity. If anybody else claimed that miracles are happening or the dead is rising, those claims are questioned just as, as enthusiastically by scientists for any other faith or any other tradition, period. But I believe in the resurrection, as I've said before, and that's not a scientific belief. That's a belief I hold because of experiences in my own life that prove nothing to anyone but me. For me, the world is renewed, the world comes alive, and God becomes available to me when I put my trust in a resurrection. And because I do that, I hold the door open for all those other miracles as well. I do. I hold the door open for them. But when I'm reading the Gospels, I'm not trying to figure out which miracles happened or which did not. When I see uh, reports in the academic world that it doesn't scare me if things come out that refute factual accounts in the Gospels. Because when I read the Gospels, I'm asking myself, what is this author saying and to what audience is he saying it? In the case of the Gospels, Jesus is being revealed as the Christ. You know, there are some people that believe that uh, the earliest understandings of Jesus didn't involve a bodily resurrection at all. That was a cosmic resurrection. The Jesus part of Jesus Christ is overemphasized compared to this universal part of God that reconciles man back to God, uh, and that all that stuff was added later. And it, depending on the, what day it is, I, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth on, on where I am. But I leave my faith in the resurrection. I, I trust that this story matters. I trust that this movement of people in the church goes back to something real and something amazing and really good news that God loves us and that God makes a way for us to be in his presence, to be with him. For me, God does not work as a puzzle and trying to figure out exactly what's mythos or logos, what's factual and what's story that points to something perhaps even greater than fact, just doesn't interest me anymore. I'm interested in hearing the stories of people of faith and how they can inform my own journey of faith. When I try to learn facts about physical world, science is my jam. But when I'm looking to understand how I can know and serve God better, that's what my faith is for. And in my faith... Water turns to wine. Our next question comes in from email, and it reads, First, I need to thank you for all the work you are doing. I have not only enjoyed it immensely, but it has significantly helped me during a time in my life when I most needed it. I recently went through a period of deconstruction, which I had fearfully resisted for so long that when I could no longer hold back my questions, it nearly drove me from the faith. I have since done a great amount of rebuilding and, more importantly, have developed an attitude of joy and excitement when exploring my understanding of God. Though the journey was painful, I have never felt so free nor so close to a loving Creator. However, when I look back at my old community or similar such groups, 
I can feel myself becoming angry at the way they misconstrue the biblical message in traditional ways which have caused so much pain. I often find myself fantasizing about viciously arguing against them and have spent copious amounts of time watching atheist-slash-Christian debates as to vicariously release emotion. I know this is unhealthy. I often remind myself that they are acting for good motives off the information that they have, but this just refuels my anger and desire for harsh correction. How can I better deal with my own emotions as to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? This question is fantastic because one of the things that most grieves me today is the constant mutual antipathy between conservative and progressive Christians, and, well, even different camps of progressive Christians and different camps of conservative Christians, and forget uh, Christians versus atheists, uh, will happily eat our own first. Which, by the way, I I, I even said own because I don't see atheists as not (laughs) somehow less or, or, or different than Christians in kind. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking a little social identity there, so forgive the, the slip. But um, it's beautiful when you find this new faith. I can relate to that. And then you look back at the people who you recently shared a faith with, and they seem trapped in something that's so oppressive and so wrong. And you just wish they could see the freedom that you see. And that is wrong. <laughs> it's the worst impulse Because before your insight, before your new understanding of God, before your deconstruction, the old model worked really well and made you very happy and helped you be a part of community and be more generous and more loving. So I certainly, certainly don't mind working on specific causes or issues that can cause tension with fellow believers. A perfect example is LGBT equality, right? I'm constantly working to get uh, my gay brothers and sisters the same rights in society that I have and to help them avoid being abused or oppressed by other people. And that can certainly cause some tension (laughs) with friends and family. But that doesn't mean I see myself as some way more enlightened or superior to to these other people. I've found a way of understanding God that works for me today, but will it tomorrow? I don't know. Ten years ago, I thought that the way I understood God would always work for me and would work for everyone else on the planet, and I was wrong. So when you're thinking about how you can, with greater health, deal with people you disagree with theologically, people who have a different understanding of God, I'm assuming you're probably... Uh, less of a of a <laughs> election and predestination and eternal conscious torment and hell kind of Christian these days, and so you look at kind of the the behaviors that come out of that belief and it bothers you, or it's it's LGBT equality, or it's one of these other hot button issues. The first thing you should do is learn some humility. You're no better than those people. Neither am I. The one of the things I love the most about myself is the way that I see good in others. <laughs> the way that I just, I don't think too much of myself. I don't think my ideas are the end all be all. They're just the best I've got today. So as you learn to hold your understanding of God in an open hand, don't become a progressive fundamentalist, (laughs) right? 
Don't let your new understanding become the new dogma. Understand that experience with God compel us to realize that we are both very loved and very, very small, all of us. And the best response you can have with others is patience and empathy and compassion. Let your faith become a faith of action and love those people. Uh, I would I would totally ditch the internet debates. They're they're not productive. They're not helpful. Um, they're interesting from an academic context. I watch a few myself. But anytime you're obsessing over something, you're picking that wound. That might mean it's time to go see a therapist. You might need to recover from the shame you feel about yourself that you're projecting on to the people who believe as you once did. That, that's what's happening. They make you so angry because you see yourself in them. You see where you were, and you feel like you were duped, but you weren't duped. You understood what you needed to understand in that season, and now you are in a new season. If you want to get angry, get angry about the way people are treated, about real abuse, real suffering, but then let that anger fuel acts of compassion and healing and forgiveness in your life. And for that other anger, the anger that comes from grief, the anger that comes from shame, process through that in safe relationships and professional counseling. And as you do so, you may find a peace that passes understanding. Those are some great questions this week. A couple were heady. I hope it wasn't too much. Um, I hope there's still some people around to listen next week. (laughs) Uh, I actually... Thought that was a pretty fun episode. I do want to let you know about a few things coming up. We're doing an event called Belong, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, with the Liturgists, the, the group that I'm a part of, and the other podcast I do, the Liturgist Podcast. If you guys haven't heard it, you should check it out. It's really good shows. We're doing an event called Belong in Atlanta, June 15th and 16th. I'm going to be there. Michael Gunger's going to be there. Pastor Betsy, you've heard her on this program. You've also heard her on the Liturgist Podcast will be there. Amina Brown, the amazing, like amazing poet will be there. And uh, Lanny Donahoe will be there. Uh, he's, uh, if you haven't heard of Lanny, he started the Catalyst Conference and Big Stuff Productions. He's a really talented guy. He's going to help us organize things and uh, keep us all on the right track for Belong. Uh, we'd really love to see you there. It's limited to 100 people. There are Man, just a few seats left, but you haven't missed it yet. But if you keep waiting, you might. So if you just go to theliturgist.com slash belong, you can see information about the conference and register right there. Uh, Also, the liturgists are going to be at Wild Goose this this year, the Wild Goose Festival in July. I'll be giving a talk there. Uh, Love to see you. Uh, I want to thank by name uh, my intern, Haley. She did a lot to get episode 18 together. She took over going through all the questions that um, takes me a long time to pick questions for the show, help write the poll that I put on Patreon for our Patreon, for our donors to pick the questions on the show. And then she actually wrote the show notes this week. So man, Haley, you're amazing. And I'd love for you, dear listener, to send a question for Haley to sort through. You can do that using the hashtag Ask Science Mike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'll grab those and put them in the email bin for consideration on the show. You can also go to AskScienceMike.com and put in a voice question, record that, or send a text question. 
uh, type it out. And that's a great way to do anonymous questions. We get a lot of anonymous questions on the show. Now, the show is listener supported, so you can help us cover the cost of putting on this production. It is a multi-person effort. It's a lot of man hours every week, and there are hard costs putting the show on. We're at $1,500 a month. I'm blown away. Uh, that covers the hard cost of the show, but actually covers very, very little time uh, after that. So I'd love to be able to help Haley and Greg cover the time that they invest in the show. And every single dollar helps, guys. And you can change or cancel a pledge at any time. The show is produced by Greg Nordine. He's the man. I get a little choked up thinking about how grateful I am for Greg and the work that he does. And the fact that every week the show sounds amazing. I get so many comments on sound quality and production quality about the show. And that's Greg. And of course, we have an amazing theme song by Jeb Bodiford. If you need podcast music or any kind of music production to us, Jeb owns a recording studio and uh, he can do music composition and he can perform the music. So if you need original music, Jeb's your guy. There are links to Jeb and Greg on AskScienceMike.com and there are also uh, links to full show notes with resources for every single question that's ever been asked on the show on AskScienceMike.com. Did I mention AskScienceMike.com? Thanks for listening to the show, you guys, and I'll see you next week.